This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is God's word. For the past few weeks, we began a new series, and a series is really about the idols of the heart. And what we said is that an idol is anything that you come to that you believe will give you some form of freedom or independence. But as a result, if it is not Jesus Christ, apart from God, that thing becomes something that you become so spiritually dependent on it makes you a slave. And we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob today. Jacob is obsessed with being blessed, this blessing the prosperity and the favor of God. And it really makes Jacob an easy person to relate to because Jacob is a sinner. Jacob is a failure. Jacob it leads to so much self-doubt in his life. It's very easy to relate to. I'm going to give you a brief background before we go into this text uh, and walk through this text together. Jacob was born one of two sons. They were twins, and they were jostling about in their mother's womb. And the mother, seeing Rebecca as, he saw, as she saw the, her sons jostling about in the womb, uh, goes to a prophet, inquires of what's going on, and hears that the elder will serve the younger. In other words, Jacob, the younger son, will be the one that God will bless. But as Jacob grew up, he's the ignored son. And Isaac, who is his father, he favored Esau, the elder son. And he's doting on Esau. Esau is the masculine, the, the lovable son in that regard. So Jacob really grew up desperate for his father's love, resentful, desperate, feeling worthless because he didn't have that. So one day, what does he do? He dresses up like Esau. Esau is athletic, strong, masculine. He's, he's dynamic and charismatic. And, and Jacob, he tricks his father, who is old and blind, to give him the blessing because he intended to give it to the elder son, steals the blessing from his brother. And because of his brother's fury, because of his brother's anger, because of his brother's desire to kill him, Jacob really leaves himself no choice but to leave. And this particular text 
is about Jacob's dream as he departs from his home and his family. There are four things we're going to learn today, very quickly, four things. First, Jacob's confusion. Second, Jacob's encounter. Thirdly, our lessons from that encounter. And lastly, our application from that encounter. The confusion, the encounter, the lessons, the application. First, we're going to go into Jacob's confusion. We're going to see this in verses 10 to 11. Jacob reaches a certain place, it says in the text. In other words, the place had no name. The, place, the name of that place wasn't even significant. It was just some somewhere, some nowhere place. In other words, Jacob, he's in the middle of nowhere. He's nowhere in his life. The text says he takes one of the stones and uses it as a pillow to rest his head at night. Now think about it. If you had a jacket, if you had a sweater, if you had anything with you, you would put it under your head and you would use it. What this means is that Jacob was poor. He was bankrupt. He left his family at a time when leaving your family in that era was certain death and destitution for you. Ancient times, you don't leave your family, you don't leave your community. So Jacob was completely friendless. He was completely friendless, he was homeless. He has no money, no family, no home, no friends. He's in the middle of nowhere, and as a result, there's no security. He's an unknown person, he's defenseless. So here's Jacob, he's penniless, he's homeless, he's defenseless. His life has completely fallen apart. And in verses 10 to 11, he stops for a night because the sun had set, it says, the sun had set over him as though the sun had just set on Jacob's entire life, all of his plans. His life is broken. His life is dark. He's confused. He's confused about God. Now remember, Jacob, the whole reason why he left home in the first place was because of the blessing. This blessing that he he so desperately wanted. It's why we often leave our homes for a blessing. But at this point, he doesn't really feel blessed. His life doesn't seem blessed. He's looking at God and he's saying, I'm confused about you. He's confused because it's not just that it's God's plan that seems far away, but God himself seems far away to Jacob. And so he's confused about God and he's alone and his life and and God are, are close to him and his blessing seems close to him. Jacob has deceived. Jacob has manipulated other people. Jacob stole and he's lost everything in his life. Now remember, at this point in time, Jacob has not been seeking God. He's not praying to God. You don't see Jacob here. He's not repentant towards God. He's not even really acknowledging God in his life. Throughout this passage, all the way up until the end, you don't see Jacob praying. You don't see him asking for mercy. You don't see him asking for help. You don't see him in repentance. He's just poor in this nowhere place, and he's alone, and he's confused. And then he has a dream, and in the dream, there's an encounter. In this dream, Jacob sees three things, and then he hears three things. And then he's comforted in three things. What does he see? First, in verse 12, he sees a stairway. Now some, you hear the phrase, Jacob's ladder. That's where that phrase comes from. But it really wasn't quite a ladder. It was a stairway, a stairway that ascended all the way up really to the throne of God. And it's this huge ramp basically where the bottom of the ramp touched the earth and the tip of the ramp touched the throne of God, heaven. The second thing he sees are angels. The angels of God are on the stairway, and they're ascending and descending 
really to the throne of grace, the throne of God. Now, angels, they're not, a lot of times when you see a society today, they paint a picture of angels to be these docile, cupid-like creatures. But really, as you read in the call to worship today, angels, when they, when they spoke, when they called out to one another, their voices thundered. And oftentimes when they approach a person, an angel would start out by saying, do not be afraid. Why? Because they were not docile creatures. These angels were powerful, mighty, royal heralds of the king from the throne of God. They were messengers of the king. And they were proclaiming and executing the degrees and the declarations of God. And they were ascending and descending from the throne of God, meaning that God's royal power was, was on the move. This was a visual display of God's power, of his majesty, and his holiness. The third thing that Jacob saw was the Lord himself. In verse 13, it was God who came down. Robert Alter, he's a very liberal scholar, taught, teaches at the University of Berkeley, uh, California in Berkeley. And, uh, but he's a, he's a foremost expert on the ancient Hebrew. And one of the things he says, he notes here, is that in the, literally with, in, the, in verse 13, he says, it's the Lord stood over Jacob. He came down and he stood over and above Jacob. God literally came down, stood over Jacob as he's defenseless, as he's homeless, as he's completely poverty-stricken and broken. God is standing over Jacob and speaking into him. And what did he say? He said three things. Jacob hears three things. Verse 13, uh, God says, I will give you this land. Verse 13 and 14, he says, I'm going to give you this land. Remember, Jacob is bankrupt. That's a promise. The second thing he says in verse 15, he says, I will be with you. Remember, Jacob was homeless, friendless, familyless. Lastly, he says, I will watch over you when Jacob was defenseless, when he had no security. In verses 13 and 14, he says, I will give you and your descendants to land. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. In other words, he's saying there is a plan. There is a promise. In verse 13, he says, I, the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. In other words, he's saying I am faithful. I am consistent. In verse 15, he says, I am with you. I will watch over you. In other words, you are safe. You will be secure. You are protected because the God of the past, the God of the present, and the God of the future is with you. What an amazing promise. What an amazing promise. In this vision, this dream, this tells Jacob that he was totally wrong about God. Jacob, at this point, was confused about God. But he's totally wrong about God. And that's really why he was confused, because when you're distant from God and you're suffering in that distance, God seems so far away. God seems so remote. God seems almost detached and unconcerned with our lives. And that's why we're we're confused, because everything that we suffer, life just feels tragic, life just feels awful, and we feel alone in it. But here, Jacob sees God's royal power, and he sees the angels, and he hears his word. And he realizes that God is not unconcerned, that God is not uninvolved, that he's not remote, that he's not removed. For a brief moment, to a small degree, Jacob saw this, that God is doing 10,000 things today for his glory and for your good. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have Ruth. The story of Ruth, she suffers the loss of her husband, and uh, her whole family is destitute. And she is homeless, friendless, familyless. 
The entire book is filled with suffering. Suffering every day. There's hardships in, mundane, in the mundane parts of the day. God is hardly mentioned in the book of Ruth. Hardly mentioned in the book of Ruth. Throughout the entire narrative, there's no vision, there's no dreams, there's no miracles. You have the book of Esther. Esther is risking her life, risks death, challenges the social, political structure of the most powerful king, kingdom in the world, straight to the king, the emperor. God is not mentioned throughout the entire narrative, but yet behind the scenes, he is maneuvering and navigating and leading in the most powerful way to bring about all things for his glory and for our good. God is concerned. In fact, God ordains and orchestrates redemption through these sufferings. And so although although we're blind to everything that God is doing, God is on the move. God is doing 10,000 things right now for his glory and for our good. Now think about it. Is it wise to say, I don't see any good, I don't see any reason, any good in this suffering. So there must, be not, there must not be a good reason. Is it wise to say that? It's, easy, it's so easy to get angry at God. It's so easy to be angry because we know that God is great and we see God as powerful. But in our suffering, if you consider that God is powerful enough to stop the suffering, you have to be open to the notion that God may be wise enough to have a perspective that we don't have. If he's powerful enough, mighty enough to bring about the suffering, to lead us in the suffering, to to be in the suffering, he must be wise enough to have a perspective that we don't have. God has a work in ways that we don't see. And for Jacob, God doesn't stand here on top of a stairway and say, you know, Jacob, I want you to climb up to me. God comes down. He came down. He's over Jacob. He's speaking into Jacob's life. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is a cheater. He can't ascend. He can't get to God on his own. And remember, Jacob, at this point, he's not seeking God. He's not praying to God. He's not repenting to God. But God, in his grace, in his love, in his compassion, comes down to Jacob at the lowest point of his life. Jacob's done horrible things, but God came down to protect him, to comfort him. That's access. We have access. That's the encounter. The third thing that we learn, the third point here is that, you know, what do we learn from this? In verses 16 and 17, you know, Jacob, he doesn't wake up and go, wow, this is amazing. This is great. The text actually says that he woke up and he was afraid. He was in awe. Really, what he's saying is, how did, I, how, am I, how did I get here? How am I even alive? And then he concludes, wait, this is the gate of heaven. In Genesis chapter 11, the people come together, and they really come together. Um, it's, the text says to make a name for themselves, to really build a tower that reaches to the heavens. In fact, the word Babel, where we get Tower of Babel, the word Babel comes from two words. The word gate B-A-B, that's the bad part, right? And the word God, L. So really, Babel was a tower. It was a ramp. It was a ziggurat, a temple that represented the gate to God, the gate of heaven, 
The Tower of Babel was, really a, was likely a temple, a ziggurat, in the form of a pyramid with a side that was a ramp, where the ground, the, the bottom of the ramp touched the ground, and the top of the ramp was really uh, represented uh, the highest access point to heaven, to God. It was always built in the center of a city where there were important people, built in a famous place in the center of that place where there were important people to reach to God. And really what you had to do is you had to climb those steps. And once you got to the top of the steps, you had to make sacrifices. That's how you earned the blessing. You had to do the work to earn the favor of the gods, to earn the blessing. Now, the narrative here is juxtaposing this stairway, uh, this gate. In this passage, he's juxtaposing the gate of heaven that Jacob sees with the Tower of Babel, something that we're already familiar with. Jacob's in awe because he's beginning to learn that this is the way to the gate. This is the way that the gate of heaven works. Every other religion is a stairway, a gateway to heaven, so to speak. Because what what every other religion says is that you are required to ascend that stairway. You start at the bottom and you work your way up. You have to do the work. You have to ascend. You have to earn the blessing. You have to earn the access to God. But look at the life of Jacob. If you live like that, it's only going to lead to deceit and to manipulation and brokenness, alienation from people that you love, confusion, jealousy, pride, brokenness. If you live like that, where you have to do the work, you're constantly going to be comparing yourselves to other people. What you deserve versus what other people have. Jacob's starting to realize, you know, he was confused because if he had to climb, if he had to earn the blessing, he has to be perfect. He has to be righteous. And he knew he wasn't. This can't be the gate to heaven. This vision was important for Jacob because what you saw was not a gate to heaven. That's not what the text says. But a gate from heaven, a stairway from heaven where God himself comes down. Jacob knew he's a sinner, he's a liar, he's broken, he's a fraud. But he realized, I had it all wrong about God. I was totally wrong about God. You cannot climb to God to earn the blessing. You cannot climb to God to earn access by being good, by being famous, by being important, by being wealthy. That's what climbing the steps means. That's, that's why we're dependent on our money. That's why we're dependent on our careers. In our society today, it's, it, we're dependent on what we do, our role, our title. It's why we're dependent. It's why we become jealous. It's why we're comparing. It's because uh, we, need to be, uh, uh, we need to be approved by our bosses. We need to have a spouse. We need to have good relationships. We need to improve our love lives or our sex lives. That's how, that's climbing the steps. We need to become good parents. We need to have good children. That's climbing the steps. We need to do all these things for a sense of worth. But Jacob's starting to realize that only by sheer grace, God comes down and gives us the blessing. We just receive. God comes down. We can't go to him. But the problem for Jacob was this. How could a holy God, how could a holy God come down to me? Now think about it. Abraham, Abraham seeks God. And how does God answer? He shows up in Genesis 15 as a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch. Abraham's encounter with God was, was, was manifest that way, a holy and consuming fire. Moses, standing on Mount Sinai, says, show me your glory. 
And God says, I cannot show you my, all of my glory. I cannot, I cannot show you all. Why? Because you will be consumed. In your call to worship, we read about Isaiah. Isaiah is standing in the temple. He goes to the temple. He sees a holy God. What does he do? He drops and he says, woe is me. Woe is me. Staring in the face of a holy God, but not Jacob. Jacob wasn't seeking God. Jacob wasn't repenting to God. Jacob likely wasn't even thinking about God. But God came down to him right into his life like a doting father. How can God do this? Jacob's, Jacob's strong. How, do you, how does God do this? How does he accomplish this? Centuries later, in John chapter 1, the people, these people come to Nathaniel. They go to his friend Nathaniel and they say, we have found the Messiah, the one whom the prophets spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth is not important. It's not a famous place. No one important comes from there. It's not big enough. I don't see a temple there. Philip says, come and see. And he encounters Jesus. And what happens here, Jesus says, here is a true Israelite. He's looking at Nathaniel and he says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathaniel asks, how is it that you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus says, know you. I saw you under the fig tree. Now, we don't know, we don't have any idea what Nathaniel was doing or thinking underneath that fig tree, but whatever it was, it was very, very private. Jesus knew. And he convinced Nathaniel instantly of who Jesus is. And when Nathaniel realized that Jesus' transcendent knowledge about him, he confessed, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds, and this is the key. He says, you believe because, you, because I told you uh, that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see even greater things. This is the key. Jesus adds, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, you think about what Jacob saw. Jacob saw a stairway with the angels of God ascending and descending on the stairway. And now, centuries later, here's Jesus talking to Nathaniel, and he says, you will see even greater things. You will see heaven open. Jacob, his life was closed to him. Heaven was closed to him. Here, Jesus says, you will see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is he saying here? Here's what he's saying. I am the stairway to heaven that Jacob saw. I am the connection. I am the link. I am the gate to heaven. He doesn't say the angels of God are ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He says the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says, I am that stairwell. I am that stairway. Jacob saw angels on the stairway. Jesus says the angels ascend and descend on me. The Son of Man is the stairway. He is the steps. What are the steps? They're the requirements to ascend to the throne of God. Jesus says, I fulfilled the requirements. I am the stairway. You come to me. I represent access to the throne of God. The centerpiece of Christianity are not lessons. They're not teachings. Yes, there are lessons. Yes, there are teachings. But the centerpiece of Christianity are not lessons. They're not teachings so that you can earn access to God. The centerpiece of Christianity is a person. Jesus Christ. 
The centerpiece of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirements. Jesus Christ climbed the steps. Jesus Christ made the journey so that you can have. He earned that access to God. He deserved the access to God. Why? So you can have it. Jesus Christ finished the work. Jesus Christ became the sacrifice. That's the only way heaven's going to open to us. Why was Jacob miserable? He was miserable because he was lonely, because he was deceitful, because he was proud, because he was wicked. He was thinking about it, really his future career direction. He was thinking about blessing. He was thinking about prosperity. Sin does that. That's what sin does. Sin alienates. Sin leads to suffering. Heaven seemed completely closed to Jacob, and for many of us, heaven seems closed to us. God seems confusing to us. But in Mark chapter 1, you know what happens? Jesus Christ is being baptized. And what happens? Heaven opens up on Jesus. And the Spirit of God, it says the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. In other words, God came down and doted on his own son. Jesus Christ, he had the love of the Father. Jacob stole the love of the Father. Jesus Christ had it. He deserved it. Jesus Christ was righteous. Jesus Christ was, earned the approval. He had the approval of his father. He had the blessing. Jacob had to steal the blessing. But Jesus Christ came down. And he says, foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. In other words, what he's saying is, I became poor. I became bankrupt. Jesus became bankrupt. Jesus Christ became homeless. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus became friendless. And on the cross, Jesus became defenseless. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the full force of the fury of God, the penalty that we deserved. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, heaven has now become closed to me. I've lost access. I've lost intimacy with God. I am alone and I am suffering. The cosmic poverty, the cosmic loneliness, the cosmic defenselessness. And he asks, why? In other words, I'm confused. Why? He did it for us. Friends, you can't ever let the cross of Christ become old. You can't ever let the beauty of Jesus Christ become old to you. You can't ever let the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross ever get old for you in your life. He did this for Jacob. And if he did it for a person like Jacob, he could do it for us. He could do it for you. Unless you come to know Jesus and his love and his grace and his beauty, God will forever be confusing. Heaven will be closed. But to know that God came down and emptied himself and suffered and died, but through that death brought life, real life. Through his poverty brings us real richness in him. Through his brokenness gives us strength. We learn that God's redemption works through weakness, through our suffering, through injustice, through self-denial, oftentimes through our confusion, even through death. And we see that God, his majestic presence is on the move. If you're suffering, we're suffering. Everybody here is suffering. If you're broken, or if you've ever been broken, if you feel at times you're being hunted, if you feel lost, if you feel abandoned, if you're confused about God, if you are in sin, What does God promise to Jacob? Remember this. 
He says, I am with you. I am with you. If he could do it for Jacob, he can do it for us. And it's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the stairway. Now the last point here is very, very quick application before we close. One, God is in it. He is in our suffering. He is with you. Remember those high school retreats? If you ever grew up in a church, you have these high school retreats. And in in every high school retreat I've ever been to, and I've been to probably 40 or 50 high school retreats over the course of just annually, you always have a period where these high school students have to present skits. And inevitably, they always have that skit where one group of people are partying and drinking and doing drugs, and they're always imitating that. And then you have Jesus kind of standing at the corner, and he's got this white toga on. That's how you know he's Jesus. You know that, right? That's what he's doing. It seems kind of ridiculous, but it's actually true. God is in it. He's in it everywhere with you. You have to practice that presence because he's there. Two, think about this. Why did God come to Jacob when he didn't even ask for God? He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't praying to God. He wasn't even living a good life. What does that tell you? God is attracted to our brokenness. So what's the requirement to see God, to have access? The only requirement is to say, I'm broken. God is attracted to our brokenness. When life seems closed, when heaven seems closed to you, God sees you. And he came down. You know what that means? You can be honest with God. You can pray to God. If you've never prayed a prayer in your life, you can pray with words that you don't even have. He hears and he sees. And one day, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing. Now, thirdly, remember, Jacob's not seeking God. He's not repentant. But how does he start to see God? In his confusion, how does he start to see God? God spoke to him in the confusion. That's important. That's the importance of the word of God. Read the word of God. Even if you're confused, even if the words seem lost to you, it's so important to read the word of God. One of those days, one of these days, the clouds of confusion are going to roll away and the sun's going to peek through and it will make sense. That's what the spirit of God does. It gives us clarity. Lastly, God does not give up on us, even despite our motives. If you look at the rest of this text, look at Jacob's response. He wakes up. And it's interesting because it's a horrible response. Jacob's response is horrible. God came, gives him this unconditional promise, not a single if statement in God's promise to him. He says, I will give you, I will be there for you, I will be there for you, I will protect you. He says all these things, not a single if statement. Jacob, he thinks he gets grace, but what does he say? I will serve you if you do these things. If you do all that you promise, then you will be my God. Look at Jacob, that's a horrible prayer. And yet God is present. Jacob's just using God, and yet God does not give up on Jacob. If you know the story of Jacob's life, God does not give up on Jacob. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you're in, God is in it. He's attracted to our brokenness. You can pray to him. You can come to him and read about him and learn of him, even if it's confusing to you, and he will not give up on you. He will not give up on you. As we come to the table today, let's remember what this meal represents. It represents that God is in it. That's why we consume it. He's attracted to our brokenness. He speaks into our lives with his word. That's why we hear the word. And he's not giving up on us. 
as we eat and share and partake in this meal together, it's really representing God's covenantal grace and love. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of God in Christ. Do you trust it? Let's pray.